You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, and I'm joined by Eric Balkunis, who's a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg uh, Intelligence. Eric also appears on and has helped create the first ever ETF TV show called Bloomberg ETF IQ, as well as a weekly segment for Bloomberg TV and radio called Exchange Traded Friday. He's also the Bloomberg View columnist, as well as co-host of the new podcast on ETFs called Trillions, and he authored the Institutional ETF Toolbox, which I must say uh, was probably my favorite book that I read uh, in the earlier days of getting into the ETF business. Now, some people might be wondering why ETFs would make it into the topic of uh, disruptors of innovation. Uh, some of you probably know that ETFs have had some of the fastest growth in the investment area in the world today. Uh, ETFs stand at over $5 trillion from a Canadian dollar uh, perspective. We're seeing enormous growth, especially here in Canada, growing at about 20 to 25% uh, per year. And it's really become an innovative industry of innovative product. And we felt that this was a great topic to be covering off today. So, Eric, thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. So I think we'll start at the top, um, which is take it back to the, the, the basics. So maybe you can start by uh, telling everybody, you know, what is an ETF? Uh, right. So uh, one of the quickest uh, definitions I heard was from Reggie Brown. It's a mutual fund with benefits. Um, that really uh, does one thing. One, I think it calms people down that an ETF isn't a derivative. Uh, so there's some people who think, oh, well, you know, it's an acronym. I don't like acronyms from Wall Street. But honestly, it's just a mutual fund um, combined with um, a couple other things that make it give it some extra benefits, right? So essentially, it's a diversified group of stocks or bonds, just like a mutual fund. Um, it goes up and down as those combination of uh, securities go up or down. So the good news is you have diversification from the uh, real volatility of single stock or bond selection, although unlike picking one stock or bond, uh, you you won't go up that much, right? Diversification is a double-edged sword, but most regular investors like to be diversified because uh, it limits their risk. So you get that, that's huge. Then you throw in intraday liquidity, so you can get in and out of the ETF whenever you want. You don't have to wait till the end of the day like a mutual fund. And typically, they're passively managed or they track an index, and that also means they typically have very low costs, right? A mutual fund would have a manager. they got to pay distribution fees. They've got a research team. That's a lot of money. you got to print all the materials. It's very uh, expensive. Um, so you find that the ETFs are very cheap, um, and we're in a – we're in an era where people want cheap. They're diversified, and you can get kind of in and out whenever you want. So, uh, and then, you know, um, here in the U.S., they're very tax efficient. Um, and there's other things, like they're transparent. You can see what they hold every day. So essentially, uh, yeah, I remember I was covering mutual funds as a reporter and a data guy when I first started to look at ETFs about 12 years ago. Uh, I was you know, basically looking at them from a data aspect. And it was something where having studied the mutual fund and other types of structures, I I found it to be like uh, not just one evolutionary step, but about five. And so that's when I I really got heavy into it because I I felt that this was a game-changing type structure that you could put almost anything in it. 
and it's just going to work really well. There's a aspect to the ETF, the, the heart and the, the secret sauce of the ETF is something called the creation redemption process, but that phrase alone will make people tune out. So I'll just say that for those who really want, you know, a, a lot of education, I highly recommend learning and studying what the creation redemption process is, but that is something that gives the ETF a lot of its edge and where a lot of the benefits spring from. But ultimately, it's structured like a mutual fund. It just has the other benefits. What do you think are some of the, the, the best educational resources for people, Eric? So um, I'm biased, but my book was really good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I wrote a book called The, the Institutional ETF Toolbox. Um, I know it's an institutional, but it's very accessible. That's a good one. That's on Amazon. If you have a terminal, obviously, a Bloomberg terminal, that's good, although – I frequently travel around, and a lot of people do not have terminals. It's um, it's uh, they're pretty expensive, and so for free it, for free resources, um, ETF.com to me has a really good educational section there. Yeah, um, that has a lot of information, um, and also I would um, and even the get ETF on and follow. I was going to say yeah, even the, the ETF issuers have some pretty good educational resources on their websites as well. Absolutely, and. It's funny, now you even see, like, you know, big, gigantic companies that just got in are now educating on ETFs. So um, they all do. I personally, I know you're an issuer, no offense, I personally like the third-party type educational resources just so it's yeah. sort of, like, standardized. But, yeah, I use the company sites here and there for for things. Um, but uh, ETF.com, I, I think, is probably my go-to free and they have this cool thing where you can uh, look at the um, – they give, like, a Zagat's review of, of ETFs, and that's very helpful. Yeah, I think they have something that's – I remember looking at it a while ago, ETF University or something, a section on their website. I think it's supposed to be pretty good. Yeah, you could also go to YouTube and, and uh, type in ETF education. I'm sure there's some stuff on there. But also, yeah. for people who are on social media, you know, just following some of these sites, um, like Morningstar, ETF.com, and then some of the people who are analysts, I put myself in that mix, Todd Rosenbluth. You can get a lot just by following these people. It'd be like following like Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith if you wanted to learn about like sports. Um, so I would definitely follow some of the analysts and um, and even some of the uh, more vocal issuers too. There's definitely a community on Twitter, and I I learn a lot, um, and I've been doing it a while. But I think it was a really good uh, source for me, especially uh, when I first started. So I know a lot of people are are quite surprised, especially when you uh, get outside of Canada, uh, when they find out that the actual first ETF originated in Canada about 25 years ago, uh, which is TIPS, and you know since then has obviously grown, as I mentioned at the beginning, to over five trillion dollars globally. Talk, let's talk a little bit about where you kind of see the future of the ETF industry, um, both in growth potential, but also in terms of the types of products. Uh, that we might be uh, coming up uh, and seeing in the next few years? Sure. So in terms of growth, um, I kind of see there – there's basically three evolutionary lines. One's giant. One is the race to zero. And this is where Vanguard, BlackRock, and uh, Schwab and, and the big T-Rexes of the ETF world battle on fees. And that's where about – 70% of the money goes to products that charge, you know, less than 15 basis points. That's called cheap beta, and it is a smash hit, and everybody loves it, and I don't see any of that stopping. 
Um, yes. If anything, the evolution is that they're going to go to zero at some point. So that's that. Then you have this sort of uh, uh, evolutionary before, line. Before you, before, before you go on to the next point, I think it's worthwhile. How do you how do you because that's a question that that I've come up with uh, as well a couple of times. How do you uh, rationalize running a business uh, where your management fees are close to zero? I mean, I I, I think it's probably worth yeah. addressing. You gotta you gotta have some other things going on. I think uh, yeah. in the case of like a BlackRock, they have some active services. They do alt. Uh, yeah. Some of those things uh, investors are okay paying a little more for. I think they're just thinking, let's get all the assets we can, and then we'll figure it out later. Um, they have some tech services. When you have a bunch of assets, you have more options. You can do some securities lending. In the, to me, for the big boys, right? The if you're using the airline industry, if you got like you know the three big airlines instead of airlines, they're Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, or something like that. Um, they're going to be basically. Uh, you know, competing on, on fees. And again, if you get a ton of assets in a product that charges three or four basis points, that's not that bad uh, mm-hmm. if there's enough assets in it. And the way the money's moving, you can see some of these products like IVV here in the U.S. get to a trillion dollars in 10 years. Yes, it charges four basis points, but when you get to a trillion, that's not that bad. Um, so I think there's that, and there's also just the idea that uh, you can you could possibly sell data sets and technology, um, you'd be able to have um, more exotic products living on the side. They might get into being in the advisory business. Uh, Vanguard is now offering an advisory service. It is going to get interesting um, in a while because there's just a, the fact is for the core of the portfolio, I just don't see any other way that, that we're going that investors are going to want to pay anything for for beta. I think they're just going to demand beta for free. And, uh, you know, these companies are going to eventually serve it. And when I say free, I mean like zero to four basis points, like in that low, almost free area. Um, and those companies just got to figure out other, other things to do and ways to make money off of that. What do you think of, uh, I mean, and as the ETF industry has been uh, evolving, you obviously are seeing different different ways to uh, to create or structure ETFs. I mean, you know, originally we were just purely focused on market cap-weighted uh, ETFs. Now, you know, we have multi-factor smart beta approaches. Uh, we have uh, active ETFs, which, you know, in Canada specifically has really started to resonate. Um, I always I always say that if you can get an active ETF, you can't re- and it, because you believe that active management uh, is important. I'm not sure why you would buy an active mutual fund uh, with a similar manager because you just, there's so many more advantages. But would, do you see any other structural changes coming? Um, I agree with you in the sense that you know 70 to 80 percent of the assets will continue to go towards the you know big three or four. Um, uh, issuers in the market, but what about from a structure perspective? Is there things that you look at right now and say this is going to be an emerging trend? Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, and that that's good segue to the second evolutionary line, which is to things that help you outperform. <laughs> I mean, because yeah. let's face it, humans are not, um, especially when it comes to investing, they're just not satisfied necessarily with like three Vanguard index funds and waiting 40 years. Even though there's nothing wrong with that, they, you'd probably beat most everybody if you just did that. But people want to try to. It's almost like a. It's almost like food, right? You you, you might not just want 
um, you know, uh, you know, some, like a ham and bread. You want to put some stuff on it to to make it more interesting, right? So, you know, whether you look at that as uh, uh, some, uh, you know, side dishes or like I, I like to call it hot sauce that will sprinkle on top of the portfolio as ways to try to outperform, play stories you like, themes, all of that is going to charge a little more, probably not, you know, a ton more. It'll probably be cheaper than um, active management. But in, in, in essence, you've got a, um, you know, you've got a, um, 20% of the assets probably in this sort of other evolutionary line, which I would put smart beta, thematic ETFs. And all of these are designed to do something different than that cheap beta part. And so I think you're going to have investors, especially advisors who are going to want to show value add, because I think a lot of advisors may fear just putting investors in a couple ETFs and calling it a day. I think they want to look for some of the new gadgets, the new things out there, the hot trends, um, because clients like that. So I think there'll always be that, that 20% of the flows going to this. And then there'll always be these, um, uh, within that 20%, you will have some of the classic issuers like a BlackRock and Vanguard taking some funds, but you'll also have some breakout indie rockers, right? Like uh, a Robo, right? Or the pot ETF. Or for example, um, uh, ARC had a, a, a big hit this year. There, these are products that offer themes that people can understand or just performance that's so spectacular you can't ignore it, like where you're beating the S&P by two or three times, not two or three percent. And uh, that, that, will always, that will always attract investors, I think. Um, uh, so I think th- that's going to be a way you're going to see uh, a lot of uh, academic research converted into ETFs. You're going to see a lot of trades like long this, short that will be converted into ETFs. And so that whole area will be the really where most of the innovation is happening. Um, and it could grow to more than 20%. Uh, I think a choppy market may help smart beta grow and eat into that uh, cheap beta market share. But for now, I see it more like an 80-20 type deal. So let's cover up one thing that also comes up a lot in the press and and, uh, and we get asked out there and be interested in your perspective uh, is – and I'm sure you've been asked this a lot recently or in the last like year or so, you know, all the, all these mutual fund companies or other individuals saying that ETFs could potentially collapse the market, uh, from a liquidity event perspective. What's your, what's your view of that? Yeah, um, I, 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 people always send me those articles because they, I guess they just want to troll me or like see my take on it, but it's, um, they're frustrating. Um, there are some legitimate concerns I have with ETFs. They're not, you know, monumental, but there's some things I worry about, but they're none of the ones that you see in the press. In my opinion, at least for now, ETS just cannot be the tail wagging the dog or distorting fundamentals to any big degree because they're still not that big, right? 3.5 trillion in the U.S. is, that means they only own 7% of the stock market. That's just not enough to really move the needle. Um, the other part of it is, if there were no ETFs in the world or no index funds or no passive per se, these big active mutual funds are essentially owning the same stuff in the index anyway. They're not going to not own Apple and Microsoft and Google and, and those kind of stocks. So in a way, a lot of what's going on is just this sort of transfer from one format to another, almost like the way we all transfer our music from CDs to MP3s. We're still listening to Bob Dylan or Radiohead. We're just getting it on a, in a different format. That's all that's happening. You're still getting your Google and J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway exposure. 
you're just now getting it in a cheaper, low-cost passive format instead of a, a higher-cost active format. So I think that's a big, important thing. So you'd have the same exact situation if there were no ETFs. Because remember, back to 1999, when the Internet bubble got big and eventually popped, nobody, I don't remember anybody blaming mutual funds. I, I don't recall seeing any articles. I think for the most part, the, the anti-mutual ETF arguments are coming from threatened parties. If you pull the thread on the FT article or whatever and you find out, okay, who is the person worrying here, you almost find it's a hedge fund or active manager type person uh, whose quote is in there, and that's what the whole article was based on. So I think it has to be, you know, really uh, careful with um, worrying on that front. On the flip side, if if that, you know, you always have choice. P investors can always just go do it themselves. You, you could go and replicate the ETF. Uh, you can, in fact, you see the holdings. They, they tell you the recipe every day. It's the holdings and the weightings. You could do it yourself. The problem is most people are fine outsourcing that. They want the convenience of it. So I think those articles don't do it justice because at the end of the day, ETFs are saving investors a ton of money in taxes and fees. And a lot of the issuers have to really live in a more competitive jungle. And so they're fighting a harder fight. And so I always say this phrase is like, I tend to get, uh, le um, try to empathize with the ETF issuer side sometimes because they're in a really brutal marketplace because their investor base is picky after tax money that's really heads up. So their, their flows are the hard way. They have to compete with like low cost products. They live in a virtual jungle so that investors can have a paradise. And so I think when you find articles that just throw out some active managers quote as if it's real and don't look at the data or provide context, I think that's an, um, a real disservice to investors. That said, there's a couple things I, I worry about. I wonder if people go and trade the, if, if people leave single securities to trade the ETF too much, I worry the ETF could suck a little too much liquidity out of the stocks and bonds they track. So far that's not a problem, but as they get bigger and bigger, um, I would watch that. And I also would watch just, uh, because you could trade in and out every day, is the temptation to trade going to cause investors to do too much trading, too much market timing, and ultimately bad behavior leads to negative returns, and therefore you would have just killed all of the cost savings and benefits of your ETF. So ETFs come with all these benefits, but you've got to resist some temptation to trade in order to realize those benefits. So those are two more legitimate worries I have than the more histrionics ones you hear in the press a lot. Got it. So talk about, let's talk about demographics because I think that that's important because I also think that that feeds into the growth potential of the ETF industry. I saw this, you probably saw it as well, this BlackRock survey uh, that came out a little while ago that talked about the uh, the percentage of you know millennials uh, buying ETFs compared to the baby boomer population and the silvers. And what you find that's interesting is as you get as you go older in the population. Uh, you have a, a, a declining rate of ETF adoption, and the younger you are, being the millennials, for example, right now I think it's about 40% um, are actually buying ETFs. Do you see that as a big driver for the growth, given the fact, for example, you know, the millennials will end up uh, inheriting uh, a lot of wealth? Um, you know, some people say that we're over the next 20 years we're going to have the biggest wealth transfer uh, in history. Do you see that as a big driver for ETF growth? And also, I guess one other question, why do you think that the 
ETF adoption rate hasn't been very high for the silvers, as they call it, or the uh, baby boomers? Um, well, it's interesting. Um, the, uh, the the millennials, I think, again, I don't know a millennial um, who maybe some had CDs for a while, but they're just in, they just use they use Spotify now. I'm like an old fogey because I use MP3s, but anyway, yeah. um, you know, iTunes. So it's always adapting in any business. The millennials I get, it's just they like cheap ETFs. ETFs are easy to trade. They like to trade like uh, some parts of their uh, account. They like to have fun because they're you know young and want to and gamble a little bit. But they definitely like cheap like sort of core base. The millennial portfolio, honestly, is I think how a lot of portfolios will look in the future: cheap, dirt cheap base core, mm-hmm. and then you play on the outside because they'll do they'll do like a a Vanguard uh, fund for like 30% of their U.S. equity, but then they'll like trade triple leveraged oil um, as, as <laughs> Well, you see that in, the, can- in so, the cannabis ETFs here in Canada, right? I mean, you know, um, yeah. the, the amount of do-it-yourself for young investors that have been buying cannabis stocks and cannabis ETFs especially has been astronomical. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. There may not be um, a perfect asset allocation model that they're using. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true, and I think there's also a um, uh, a distrust of Wall Street that millennials have that ETFs somewhat solve for them. I, I think they just don't want they don't want middle like I don't say middleman, but in, in middle person's money on their hands on their money, and so I think they acknowledge that ETFs eliminate the amount of intermediaries, and I think they have less faith that a um, you know, a person can like outperform the market. I think a lot of the information that has been spread due to the internet um, has gone to the uh, has helped it gone to blogs and then the journal. And so that spread of information has really, you know, it, millennials consume so much of that information. Boomers and silvers don't do that. They're not on Twitter. They're not. They're not just not as plugged in. They don't read blogs. If they, you know, but however, however, you are now reading articles about low cost and ETFs in USA Today, which is like the end of the media line. And so it's going to probably happen. The thing with Silvers and Millennials is they've got so much money in mutual funds and they've made a lot on the bull market. They're probably hesitant to realize the capital gains and move it. So they're almost better off just staying in there. So mutual funds have a lot of like artificial protection on their side. They've got 401k plans, which ETFs have not penetrated, and they've got the unrealized capital gains. If you took those two things away, I think you'd find the asset growth way faster in, into ETFs. Um, but I did see an uptick in the silvers on the BlackRock's latest report. In fact, silvers, I think, were the second generation. My guess is that silvers are shifting around for income and whatnot, and I think ETFs are a good way to get income, whether it's MLPs or high-yield debt. So my guess is the Silvers have been starting to use ETS for those kind of purposes uh, because they're really good at clearly defining how to get income uh, in different ways, uh, whether it's options rating strategies or high-yield debt or MLP. There's all, you know, dividend-paying stock ETFs. So it's interesting to see that, but um, my generation is near the bottom. Uh, I think a lot of us went into 401Ks in our 20s, and then we're just sort of there now. And so I think that's why uh, if, if those structural advantages change, uh, all the generations will probably move over to a degree 
Um, and we'll, but we'll see. I mean, you know, uh, those, those are big structural benefits. Uh, but that's why I always tell active managers, do not root for a sell-off. A lot of them think a sell-off is when they'll show their stripes and, like, everybody will see how active is better in a down market. But the problem is uh, usually they're holding the same stock, so they go down just about the same as the index anyway. And the second thing is in a down market, some of those investors may decide to realize their gains because they've gotten losses now. And then they're going to move out to the cheaper fund and migrate to the cheaper index or ETF product. So I always tell active managers, you know, rooting for a sell-off might not be the best idea. Right. So thanks a lot, Eric, for joining us today. Uh, this was very informative and, and helpful, I hope, for a lot of the uh, listeners. And uh, I don't know if you want to close off with maybe one or two of your top predictions that you might have for the ETF industry over the course of the next few years. Uh, we, well, I guess I would say that, you know, prepare to be surprised because I, I just saw a filing for a pet owner's ETF um, <laughs> uh, this week, and I yeah. didn't even know that could be a thing. I also saw a dry bulk freight futures ETF uh, launch uh, two weeks ago. And then I also think that there's going to be ETFs that, that are like structured products, which you could argue are not good, which they it's sort of like guaranteed outcomes. Um, so you're going to see a lot. I mean, anything you can think of or has ever been thought of will eventually make its way into an ETF. So that innovation is going to be interesting. So expect more of that. And the reason you're going to see that is because all the money is going to ETS virtually and people want to be doing something there. I also think you're going to see this, what I call BYOA or bring your own assets. These big companies like uh, Prudential, uh, insurance companies like USAA, um, they're going to come over to the ETF world, Fidelity, uh, and they're going to have a lot of the, they're going to bring a lot of money with them. They're probably going to have a tough time getting organic growth but they're going to convert mutual fund investors into their ETFs, and that's going to be a nice pipeline of flows. So look for big companies to start getting big in the ETF space, albeit at first it will be probably self-cannibalization, but ultimately they may attract some more uh, natural flows down the road. Um, and I also, look, I mean, I think on the um, the active management front, it will be interesting to see how active – uh, moves and, and utilizes the ETF structure going forward and the Vanguard effect on active and whether uh, the fees will come down, which will improve in performance and will reach a sort of more happy medium going forward between active and passive. Um, so, I don't know, those are some of the things I'm watching um, as we go forward um, and, uh, you know, it'll be interesting though. Never a dull moment. Great. Thanks a lot for your time, Eric. Thank you. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.